nice bright sunny day but it's very cold and it's very windy well the other night we had a 44 mile an hour wind it's not unusual to go well over 50 miles an hour even 60 in this area in march and then in the summer it gets over 100 degrees so they had quite a a climate change to make as well as, you know, being out of the privacy of their home and put in these barracks. In March 2022, I visited the Manzanar National Historic Site in California. The site was one of 10 U.S. concentration camps during World War II, and over 10,000 people of Japanese ancestry were incarcerated. Isolated from neighboring towns, it sat right beside a highway, against a steep mountain range covered with snow. The site is maintained by National Park Service, and I talked to the Dr. Patricia Biggs, a park ranger and a historian of U.S. history. Can you paint a picture about what their everyday life looked like? Within a month, they had 7,000 people incarcerated here. If you woke up in Manzanar, especially those early days, first thing you do is shake all the dirt off you and the dust that came in through the cracks. You need to go to the communal latrine building where you can use the toilet, take a shower, wash your hands, whatever. And then you go, and, and of course, keep in mind, so a, a block might have up to 300 people. It was roughly half and half men and women throughout. So I think 150 women going to use 10 toilets and about six shower heads and one big trough sink. And then you go and line up at the mess hall for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We have lots of photos of people of long lines stringing outside the mess hall, just waiting for them. The peak population hit in September 42 was 10,046. And then overall, there were 11,070 people who were incarcerated here at some point during the war. Essentially 10,000 people, 541 babies were born, 150 people died. So if you think of this as a city, which some people take offense at looking at that way, but as a community of what became 10,000 people, everything you need to run a city of that size had to be done. Everything from trash collection to, to surgery. And Japanese Americans did most of that. So right away, they're trying to find people um, who have skills at those things. In the midst of despair, some Japanese Americans immediately responded to the needs and stepped up to improve their living conditions. One of the things that happened was Dr. Yoshie Togasake, who was a public health doctor, came, volunteered to come early, and she started making sure that everyone got vaccinated for the, the diseases of the time. She taught hygiene classes, and she also worked with the mothers who had young babies about formula, that kind of thing to keep their babies safe. So the health issues were addressed right away by the Japanese Americans. Education was addressed right away. And also April 11th, 1942, the first edition of the camp newspaper Manzanar Free Press was issued. And in that paper, there's a, an article telling parents to register their children for preschool and kindergarten. And also camp is divided into 36 residential blocks and they filled them by number, right? So one, two, three. There was a woman whom I hadn't mentioned to you named Mia Kikuchi, and she worked in what they called the information office. And she would find a volunteer who was already here to go out, meet the people, find out what their needs were, 
and then they would get together and find a way to take care of those needs. So this is all being done by the Japanese Americans who had been forced from their homes and, and brought here and trying to make it better. Although the living conditions were improved, the basis of their situation remained the same. So over time, the, the lifestyle changed and, and the conditions got better. What never changed and what I really like to focus on when I give groups is that the basic human rights, the basic civil rights of these people were abrogated. And for most of them, their constitutional rights were abrogated because most of them were U.S. citizens. And U.S. citizens, according to the Constitution, are not supposed to be put in what amounts to a prison without being charged and found guilty of a crime. And that never goes away. So regardless of things got better, or even in many cases you met the person of your dream and got married and had a happy life afterwards, still that basic essential fact remained. And, and I think that's the most important message to visitors, that it happened then, this could happen again if people don't stand up for what's right. Dr. Vix doesn't use the word internment to describe the camp. It is now a common practice on a national level. Um, the use of the term internees, that's something that we have used in the past. We are trying to be more precise. They were, they were not internees because that's actually a, a legal thing you can do to citizens of a warring nation. So like the people the Department of Justice picked up who were not American citizens, Germans, Italians, and Japanese, they were interned at other places. These war relocation authority camps like Manzanar didn't have any legal authority really except that that was issued by Franklin Roosevelt and upheld at the time by the Supreme Court. Anyway, they were incarcerated. They were never charged with a crime. Um, they did nothing but live in an area that they wanted cleared out. Margaret Deal Gleason was a white woman who worked here. She was community welfare. She worked for the YWCA. And one of the things she did there was, because this was quite a bit before the war, this was in an era where you still had the picture brides coming over, right? And so she would work with these young Japanese women, get them ready for maybe American customs. Her understanding of the Japanese people, her compassion just really come through. Another woman I hadn't mentioned before, Genevieve Carter, another white woman, was really serious about education. And she had a daughter that was about nine years old named Virginia who was here with them. Instead of having her daughter go to school in a nearby town, she had, she enrolled Virginia right here in these classes. And early on, when the schools began in the fall of 1942, it became apparent that a lot of the Issei did not want their children being taught by the Nisei. They wanted being taught by the white folks. So Genevieve Carter wrote an editorial that they printed in the free press basically saying, look, the Nisei are better qualified than some of the white teachers. You know, we should support these teachers. They know what they're doing and all this. Manzanao was also the only camp that had an orphanage. Lillian Matsumoto was a very incredible person, and she worked at the Shonian Orphanage in L.A., and Harry Matsumoto, whom she ended up marrying, worked there also. He did not have a degree in social work. The gentleman who had started that orphanage was Issei, and he was picked up by the FBI. So it was Lillian and her husband running the orphanage. And when the army declared that everybody had to go, they basically you know, started talking to the officials about 
what are we going to do with the kids? And so Lillian and her husband came up here to Manzanar to check it out, and they decided it would be best if everyone came here and they would run the orphanage. So the Shonian in L.A., also the Mary Knoll Orphanage in L.A., and then the Salvation Army in San Francisco, the Japanese-American kids there, they all came to Manzanar. It was the only camp that had an orphanage. Lillian made sure that those buildings were better quality than the regular barracks. Last fall, Lillian was inducted into the California Social Work Hall of Distinction, I want to say. And it was, it was quite a wonderful posthumous honor. She mentioned about some couples might have given up children, especially when they are mixed race. At the time, in California, there, you were not allowed to marry you know, mixed race marriages. But keep in mind, marriage laws are by the states, right? So some states you could. So it depended who was of Japanese descent, right? A Japanese-American woman is not really a threat. That's how it runs. A woman is not really a threat, right? If it was a man, they did not get permission to leave here and join their white or non-Japanese wives. He's coming here. If the woman was white, you know, she could come or not, but the kids were coming, right? So you have a couple of different ways that could go. There were a lot of women whose names would not seem to be, whose last names would not seem to be Japanese, who left the camp that first summer. And when I looked into it, it was usually, uh, they, were, they were of Japanese ancestry, but their husband wasn't. About this one woman, Elaine Black Yonetta, who was married to Carl Yonetta, who was Hawaiian, Japanese, so American. And they had a little three-year-old boy named Tommy. So basically Elaine strong-armed her way onto the bus with Tommy and came and was here. Uh, there's another couple, and I'm not gonna go into these names because it's not as pleasant of a thing about the wife, but she was white. She would come and visit her husband and kids a couple times, and then she decided to divorce her husband, got permission to take the kids outside of the of California. She took them to Denver, and um, the story gets tragic because the son got hit by a car like the first day they were there and killed, and uh, then the, the man here lost touch with his daughter for a long, long time. I'm not sure if it wasn't close to forever. Manzana was also the site of the December 1942 incident that resulted in the death of two men upon the institution of the martial law and soldiers firing at the crowd. So the so-called riot, which I would more, uh, I would categorize as a deadly standoff, okay? Because riot, I think of people going and breaking windows and looting and all, and it did not, that wasn't what was happening. What you mentioned about other things, people not getting along, is really what is key to that so-called riot on December 6, 1942. You had 10,000 people suddenly pushed into these horrible conditions. There were people of all walks of life. You had Issei, you had Nisei, you had Kibe. Because of that, the Kibe men in particular, the government didn't trust. They looked at the Issei men as, well, they're old, right? The Kibe men, they're young, and they've been indoctrinated. Now, <clears throat> I've, I've interviewed Kibe men, and not all of them were indoctrinated, but this was the fear. So they get in this camp, and 
in a lot of little ways, it's, it's juggling to try to make things better for your family or yourself. So anything that already was a problem, you get in here, it's a bigger problem. Essentially the way I finally interpreted the, the different factions by the time of the so-called riot was you had people who were like the free press staff that I talked about, they were like kind of gung-ho. You had the Japanese American Citizen League leaders who, although they first tried to have this not happen to Japanese Americans, when they realized they couldn't fight it, they got on board with, okay, let's cooperate, make the government think we're okay and all this. Well, that really irritated some of the people in the camps. All these different stresses are happening. So there's three exhibits out there by the police station. One of them is an overview, and there's a photo that was actually taken that day during that early gathering of everybody hanging around by a soldier. And a couple of women teachers in camp ended up with it in their scrapbooks. And when I saw it, I'm like, oh my God, I know what this is, right? So we have that. Um, so that's sort of the overview. And then there's these two long horizontal exhibits facing off. And they're told from, if you're on this side, you're, you're a military policeman. And it's what happened, but from your perspective. And then the other one is your Japanese American, what happened. Um, it's all like personal testimony and such. And I, I only included people who were there and who spoke or wrote about it or were interviewed like within days. So this isn't like oral histories 40 years later. I mean, and I wanted to bring everything, you know, close in time, close in space. She's preparing for the fourth one as she recently came across an exciting discovery. So those were just about ready to go to fabrication. I was at the Eastern California Museum in Independence looking for something totally unrelated that I knew they had. And they're looking around in one of the People comes and brings me this box. She goes, I don't know what's in this. It says Manzanar related. So I'm just going through, and there's some cool stuff and everything. And then I get to the bottom, and there's this folded over piece of paper that's like this big. And as I'm opening it, I'm seeing these little dots, and I realize, oh my God, this is the riot. This is a sketch of who was where. And then it's written in Japanese. This is written by people incarcerated here. It shows him being shot. It shows he got this far, and it shows people carried him here. So I convinced our cultural resources guy to authorize one more wayside, and that's about to go to fabrication, and it's with that sketch. It's, it's I don't know, I totally geek out. I'm in a story, and what can I say? <laughs> After talking to her for a while, I was curious to know how she became interested in preserving Japanese-American history. I spent 22 years as a journalist in Arizona working for the Arizona Republic. I was a college dropout and had a family, so I went back to college and in 2006 I got my bachelor's in history and by that time I decided this is so fun I'm going to go to graduate school. So I went into the PhD program there. I took early retirement from the newspaper and at the ASU Arizona State University History Department, once you have um, finished your coursework and defended your dissertation prospectus, if you want to stay on a stipend, you teach, right? You're not a teacher's aide or anything, you're teaching college courses. So I was teaching the second half of U.S. history to college freshmen. And one of the projects I had them do was about migration within the country, right? I, in my mind, we always talk about immigration, but migration is very interesting too. And one of them had done 
a suitcase going on. You know, you could only take what you could carry. So they came up, and they had studied the Japanese-American forced migration, and she had this old suitcase, and she opened it, and she had all these things, like she had a picture of a Japanese-American family incarcerated with the American flag behind them. She had made artwork out of shells. And I thought, this is so powerful, right? Because all the things I'd talked about or done in the class had never grabbed these two young women the way this history had. Manzana is well maintained, and you can view rebuilt barracks, vitrines, and mess hall. How did the Manzana become a national historic site? This goes really back to 1969, when、uh, At least in American culture at the time, there was a lot of you know, black power, gay power, and、um, so there were Japanese Americans going in college at the time, right? And、uh, they decided, some Japanese Americans decided, you know, we need, to, we need to march somewhere, right? We need to march. And so they, they started thinking about always hearing their parents talk about camp, because for decades, the people who experienced this did not want to talk about it, they were very ashamed of it. So they found out about Manzanar, and then they realized it's 230 miles or so from LA, so we're not marching, but we'll drive. And one of the people that got involved that year was Sue Kunitomi Embry, who, as a young woman, had been incarcerated in Manzanar. She worked on the Manzanar Free Press here, and then she left and went to Chicago during the war and worked there. But she finally, as so many of them did, resettled back in LA. So they came up here for the first, what they thought was the first pilgrimage, only to find out that some. Buddhist and Christian ministers had been coming up every August at Obon time for pilgrimages to, to honor the people who had died in Manzanar. But it was the first organized kind of public pilgrimage in 1969. And that went forward. They formed the Manzanar Committee. And Sukunatomi Embry decided just to take it a step at a time. So in 1973, they established. On the site, the, the large plaque you might have seen outside the, the state level, California Historical Landmark, which preserved it to some degree. Then it went forward as a National Historic Landmark, and then on March 3, 1992, Congress declared it a National Historic Site, making it part of the Park Service. It was the first site to become part of the Park Service, largely because of the grassroots work done by Sukunatomi Embry and a lot of other people. So,、uh, when the site became a Park Service site, it was understood that we would help support these pilgrimages. So, we have special tours, we have lots of docents come in, we have over a thousand people come to those pilgrimages. But why do people still want to come back here after what they needed to endure? Some of them come to honor their, maybe their grandparents who have passed. Some of them come to learn their own heritage. Others come in support of, like I said, the other ethnic communities and such. There was a young man on that group, and I told him where we're going to walk through and everything. And、uh, at some point he said, You said we we're going to go through Block 22, and I, this was where your father was. And then I turned away for a moment and I looked back, and out of his coat, He had pulled this bouquet of flowers and he set it down on the ground there and he just started crying. One of the symbolic remainings in Manzanal is a monument created in 1943 by Ryozo Kado, who was incarcerated at that time. 
The monument was funded by 15 cent donations from each family in the camp. The monument was created during the war by different religions, and the Japanese inscription on it, Iroeto, translates basically as soul consoling tower. So it is the monument at the cemetery where people are buried, and it's the centerpiece of all of that. To conclude the conversation, I ask about where the government stands in preserving these former campsites. They passed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, and in it, Congress referred to this as a grave injustice and reiterated what the, the Commission had said about racial prejudice and such being reasons. And then Ronald Reagan, and there's a famous video clip that we play in our visitor center, he said, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but he basically said, you know, it's, it's kind of, you don't like to look back and criticize a former president, but we have to acknowledge this for what it was a mistake. And here we undo, here we right a wrong. So then President Bush, the first President Bush came into office, and he's the first one that was sending out actual letters of apology and the $20,000 checks. And that continued under Clinton as well. So when I came to work here 10 years ago, It's like, okay, this is no longer up for debate. A visitor can't say, yeah, well, we didn't know then. Well, normal people didn't, but the president did, and that's established. So that's the only reason, really, that I'm comfortable being here. If it was still like, well, maybe we needed to, no. So the Park Service in recent years has tried to become a much more diverse and inclusive agency. Way back in the day, You know, it was really only white families who went to national parks, and it was mostly white men who worked for the Park Service, right? And there's things going on in recent decades that, that show us how tenuous our Constitution is, right? If we don't every day support it, it, it can be trod upon. And that's, that's the strength of these camps. Another former campsite that was in southeastern Colorado called Amachi in Granada was newly designated as America's National Park after both houses of Congress passed a bill. The camp that was in southeastern Colorado called Amachi, right outside the town of Granada. So that site will also be joining the Park Service, so that's exciting. So it's a growing kind of awareness. This episode was produced by Reina Higashitani. Music is composed by Aiko Fukushima, edited by Christine Park, sound mixed by Christine Park and Reina Higashitani. This is Chasing Cherry Blossoms, reframing American history through the Japanese experience.